0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by...
1: Yulia Joja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington University, and...
2: Dali Ruhash, also with the American Enterprise Institute.
0: On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along a line which runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front and why these matter to the United States. Today, we're joined by my colleague and, I hope, good friend, Zach Cooper. Uh, Zach is a China as an a- and Asia expert. So what we're going to talk uh, today about is the implications for the balance of power in Asia, for Americans America's posture in Asia, what lessons the Chinese and others are learning from the Ukraine war, and also, more broadly, from the Eastern Front. Uh, the Chinese have invested some money uh, over the last decade or so in outreach programs uh, to Eastern Europe. And it'd be interesting to know what Zach's uh, views are on whether those have been advanced or diminished by recent events. If you enjoy our episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks and welcome. Zach, there has been no spate uh, of articles, uh, mostly, uh, you know, off-the-wall articles describing uh, the lessons the Chinese and the People's Liberation Army may or may not be learning uh, from uh, the Ukraine experience. Uh, you can find almost anything you want uh, uh, pro or con, uh, up or down, if you read those articles. I'd be very interested in your take, uh, in what the view from Beijing is on the situation in Ukraine.
1: Well,
3: thanks, Giselle. It's great to, great to be here uh, with Yulia and with Dalbor as well. And um, I, I think there are really two questions here. The first is what the lessons are that the Chinese should be learning. And then I think there's a question of what lessons they actually are learning. And to boil this down to the most simple three points I can, I would say I think they should be learning three lessons, the first of which is that um, invasions are really hard. Uh, and oh, by the way, the Russians had Ukraine surrounded on basically three sides and they still couldn't get the invasion done. And most of this was over land borders. You know, in a Taiwan contingency, the Chinese would have to be invading across a hundred miles of water, right? And amphibious invasions are basically the hardest type of, of operation militarily. So, you know, lesson number one should be invasions are tough. And um, if you thought invading Ukraine was hard, well, wait till you see what invading Taiwan would be like. Lesson number two, I think should be that uh, Vladimir Putin seems to have gotten some pretty terrible uh, advice from his military or at least uh, he he wasn't listening to whatever advice he was getting if they were giving him better advice. And again, I think this is a similar problem for Xi Jinping, you know, he's in an increasingly personalized dictatorship, probably not going to get the best information from the People's Liberation Army. And then I think the third aspect that Chinese observers should take away is that um, actually a lot of the advanced industrial democracies have been much more united and much more willing to use sanctions as a penalty than I certainly thought and I think that most observers would have expected. So there's been much more unity. And I think you might not see the same thing in a Taiwan situation, but I think it would be somewhat uh, stronger than people would have expected, at least going back to say early February. So those are the three lessons I think they should be learning. The three lessons that chinese observers and experts say they are learning are very different and i think we have to caveat this by acknowledging that you know they certainly have
0: we don't know what we're talking about
3: (laughs) right and and of course these these officials in particular have an incentive to mislead but but to be very brief you know the three lessons i hear often from chinese experts are number one joe biden is terrified of nuclear weapons he says it all the time Uh, and oh by the way china is building up a lot of nuclear weapons right now number two that uh, China is not Russia, and that the Russian military uh, tried to do a pretty terrible invasion plan and it failed, but that the Chinese would be much more capable if they actually had to do this and you know they're much larger power. And third, that um, the international community wouldn't come to Taiwan's aid the same way it's come to Ukraine's aid because after all, Ukraine is shown that it could put up a real fight. Uh, But in fact, most countries around the world don't even recognize the government that is on Taiwan as a sovereign government. So why would they fight or support a government that they don't even respect
0: as having sovereignty?
3: So those are sort of the three arguments I hear most from the Chinese side.
0: Zach, you've done this before, obviously. There's a huge amount to chew on there. And I'll Uh, relinquish the microphone momentarily, but maybe if we could start with the challenges of getting good advice when you have a highly centralized, personalized leadership. I think it's particularly apropos in regard to the fact that Xi Jinping is about to declare himself emperor for life. So uh, he's doubling down on uh, that sort of regime and that uh, personalized control it seems that in ukraine the more putin has got involved the worse the russian situation has has become he's changed out front commanders and sub commanders and given rudder orders to units um uh uh, with little to show for it do you think is even revising his speech (laughs) i mean are there structural weaknesses that we can already see in the supreme command of the PLA and the Party,
3: I think it's really hard for us to know what's going on within the Party. And to be frank, I think most experts in China don't know exactly what's going on around Xi Jinping anymore. It, you know, even people that used to be pretty in the know will say to many of us outside that they they're not really asked for their opinions.
0: So I think. Does he have have Does he have one of those big tables?
3: <laughs> I you know he doesn't have those the Putin, Putin table. I think that,
0: nobody yeah, has that. That'll be the
3: final. Yeah, step. that's right. Yeah. Um, but no, I I think I think we should be pretty confident that she is probably getting some bad advice, not just on military issues, but on a whole range of issues. You know, you mentioned the damage that China has done in Eastern Europe to its own cause over the last few years. I think it's really substantial. I'm not sure that Chinese know or that they really care that much. I think you've seen Qi really damaged the Chinese economy, right, through his zero COVID policies, through his crackdown on the tech sector, doesn't seem to care very much about that. So I don't see any reason to believe that he's gonna get better advice from his military on their capabilities than he's getting from his economic advisors or his diplomatic advisors. And I think as you noted, the the reason is pretty simple. You know, who wants to tell Xi Jinping that he's not doing a good job? I think that's a pretty quick recipe for maybe not death, but, but a pretty long jail sentence. So I, I think getting good information to Xi is going to be really hard. And the final point I'd make on that is it means that it may be possible for us to win or to stop the Chinese from winning a war over Taiwan, but it may be really hard for us to convince Xi before a conflict that he's not going to prevail. And so I worry more about our capability to deter necessarily than our uh, ability to defend it's a
2: lesson you have to learn for yourself I wonder if we could just for a second set aside the issue of Taiwan and the lessons that the Chinese might have drawn from the current war and, and if if you could just tell us a little bit more about how you see um the dynamic of the china russia relationship evolving in the aftermath of of Russia's invasion which happened you know two weeks after they signed this treaty of friendship forever we saw you know, China, I think navigating very carefully this environment of Western sanctions, trying to avoid to avoid running afoul of, of these sanctions. Clearly uh, a complete Russian debacle in, in, in Ukraine cannot be in, in in China's interest. And one wonders if if the Chinese will try to pull some strings as as, as Ukrainians continue to gain ground. On the, on, 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 on the battlefield. So, so any observations from what we've seen already and, and, you know, where things might go would be highly appreciated.
3: I'm interested in your views on this too. I, I got this one wrong. So I, I have thought for quite some time that it wasn't in China's interest to really line up fully with Russia and that China wouldn't do this because, after all, you know, if you really think about if you had to choose between Europe or Russia, why would you choose Russia, right? It seems like a pretty terrible choice. And so I thought at the end of the day that the Chinese would try and have it both ways, right? They they would try and pull Europe in and yet still keep Russia close, which meant not doubling down on the Russia relationship if Russia was really in a significant you know battle with with the european union and others so i i just didn't think the chinese would do this for strategic reasons and i was wrong uh and so i i'm you know pretty careful now about making any predictions about where she uh might go i i just and
2: were you wrong though i mean like in in what ways were you wrong i mean it strikes me as, as it, Let's talk about how Zach was wrong. You know, reasonable assessment of like how the Chinese have behaved, no? Well,
3: yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, they they have basically enforced the sanctions for the most part. I think they haven't done some of the things that we would have found most concerning. They also haven't provided weaponry that we know about in public to the Russians. And I do think that was a real danger in March and April. You know, the February 4th statement that the that Putin and she made, that that went far beyond what I expected, and I I think the blowback has been pretty pretty serious for the Chinese. You know, they've essentially lost the comprehensive agreement on investment that they had spent years negotiating with Europe. The the fourteen well the what used to be the seventeen plus one grouping is now down to fourteen plus one, and it seems like it's going to go to zero plus
0: one, dropping like the stock. Yeah, market. right. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but I I think the Chinese. You're right that they, they don't want to bet fully on Putin. But, but one comment that some Chinese experts have made to me, and they've said officials have said something similar, is that at the end of the day, if they line up with the US, what are they going to get for it, right? They're just going to end up with Russia being isolated, and then the US and Europe will turn on China. And so they'll say there's no reason for us to do that. So we'll we'll keep you know going uh, and working with the Russians to the extent that they can. And I, you know I think that seems to be what what she and Putin have done. And and my guess is that you know she and Putin I think have met forty times um, in person. I, I just think they probably have a close enough relationship the two of them that it's going to be very hard to peel Putin and she away from each other until one of them leaves power
0: before we leave this topic I'm sorry yulia please indulge me um can is it possible to make a case that there there are some uh, upsides to russia's being defined as a not a front rank power in this regard it, it, you know that was always sort of the case or has been the case in the russia china relationship for for some time but now it's you know to some degree and who knows you know sort of what the the subjects would be uh, but there's clearly a lead dog and a following dog here, or a lesser dog, alpha dog. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I get alpha about things these days. Um, is that the end? Is Especially if you thought the world was sort of segregating itself into economic blocks anyway. So- that's the best case I can make. Tell me I'm crazy.
3: No, no, I, I think you're right. You know, to the extent that the Chinese need cheap natural resources, well, now they've now they've got sort of a wholly owned subsidiary, right, that doesn't have a lot of other options. So, you know, I think from a Chinese point of view, that's that's not the end of the world. Um, and I also think they'll make the argument that, you know, the, the West, as as we sometimes say, even though I hate the term, may be more consolidated, but the global South wants nothing to do with this Russia they just West, want to stay dynamic. Out. They yeah. want to stay out. They you know, they, they don't like the repercussions and the sanctions. And so I think what you see is the Chinese saying, look, you know, this may be consolidating the West, but we're gonna shift our focus to the global south and convince a lot of these countries that actually, you know, the US and Europe supporting Ukraine isn't in their interest in the long term and that um, you know, I, I think to some extent, actually, that's been a line that's been actually fairly effective in Africa and Latin America and elsewhere.
1: So my conclusion here, oversimplified, is that so far what we're seeing in the the, the Chinese involvement in this war is they're just abstaining. With pluses and minuses for now, they're abstaining. Now, um, before, again, we move on to a different topic, um, I want to ask you um, about the future in the context of nuclear. Funnily enough, um, a lot of people have told me, including some of my students, were asking this, well, in the in the nuclear scenarios of Russia with a tactical bomb in Ukraine, um the US could do one or the other thing, but in the end, how would China react? I think China would be um a game changer because they couldn't really, the argument goes, accept something like that um that is, you know, not directly in their interest. So then building on to two points that you made, um one that on uh, that Biden is terrified of nuclear war and then the other one that on that on the other hand China is on a strategic and military level really investing into nuclear research and amplifying their stockpiles and whatever they're doing how does that fit into such a scenario how do you think Russia would react if we were to look at such a scenario and say the the russians are um, how would china react and the russians would tell them privately you know i'm really thinking about this would you be game for this i don't know how the conversation go go between uh, Xi and and putin but there would be probably some chatter about this so how would you see china reacting would it would it be a game changer in terms of stopping the abstentions that we're seeing in the in the un
3: it's such a fascinating question and I'm gonna try not to go on too long about this, but I spent all of last week at a, at a discussion about exactly this topic, and we actually did a couple day simulation by a government agency on what China and Russia might do in these nuclear use cases. I think, I'm not sure. Um, I've heard some Russians suggest that they think actually China wouldn't of course be supportive of a Russian nuclear use, but that the opposition wouldn't be that severe. And the penalties from China wouldn't be that severe because at the end of the day, China just needs Russia and it doesn't want Russia to be fully isolated. I think most, you know, Western experts would think that the Chinese would be forced to take a harder line in that case. Excuse,
0: excuse me, that, these are Russian experts speaking?
3: Yes. Um,
0: <laughs> like the same guys who said the Russians were going to roll over <laughs> Ukraine. No, or... <laughs> th- so,
3: so these were actually Russian experts that sort of. Fled. That are who
0: Maro experts do. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay.
3: And, and people that know China quite quite well. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry. But I think it may be emblematic of how, you know, folks in Moscow could think about this. and, And you all know this better than I will. But, you know, my sense is, you know, maybe there's a view in Moscow that the Chinese just don't have any other options at this point. I do think this this would pose a really big challenge for the Chinese because up until a few years ago, the Chinese view of nuclear weapons traditionally had been that they're not very useful because they're not usable. And so they have a no first use policy. We could debate how substantial that is. They had a very limited force up until a few years ago, and I, I think the idea that nuclear weapons could actually be used in a conflict would sort of shake the Chinese a bit. And I don't know how they would react to it. Now their their force is changing very rapidly right now. You know, I did the rollout for what we call the China Military Power Report just about two years ago, when the U.S. military said, uh, the U.S. Defense Department said that our estimates were that the Chinese had uh, deployable nuclear weapons in the low 200s. And now the estimate as of a year ago is that it's going to be over 1,000 by 2030. And there's a rumor that it might be over 1,000 even sooner than that. So, you know, clearly the Chinese have decided that nuclear weapons maybe are more useful or, or valuable than they thought. I think there would be some really tough strains and stresses in the Chinese system if there was a Russian nuclear use.
1: And then building onto that, and sort of slightly pivoting, if we are to think about um, the China, how China is looking at this conflict in the long term, as they, you know, pride themselves of of thinking strategically ahead, unlike Russia, um, and if we're going down the path of economic blocks. Um, is that then, in your understanding, the Chinese view, okay, so we don't really care about ruining the economic relationship with the EU despite, you know, getting some serious income from that, Um, and we're just going to focus on the global south as as one avenue of getting raw resources and being able to control them really well in the strategic competition or whatever we want to call it, and we're just going to dismiss the west overall sorry for using that term that you don't like um is that something that they are really considering and does it would it then play no role if we if the europeans would continue to push against china even more so under U.S. Um, under U.S. sort of encouragements, um, does it not matter at all how the Europeans are looking at China now?
3: This is one of the toughest questions. I've I've asked a bunch of Chinese experts this question, you know, for seven months now, right? Uh, because initially, I think a lot of Americans said to Chinese experts, "Aren't you worried about the damage this is doing?" And they said, "Oh no, the U.S.-China relationship is already terrible. It can't get that much worse. So who who cares if we support Russia?" and then the american response would be well you might not care about the americans but don't you care about the europeans right you're you're losing europe really really quickly and i got two responses from chinese side one is frankly who cares and and look I, that's not my view that's that's the you know chinese expert argument like at the end of the day you know i think to some degree the chinese think you know they're two big superpowers and it's the us and china and Europe doesn't qualify, and so why why give too much strategic agency to Europe? And I think there's been another argument, which is that at the end of the day, you know, the Europeans will go along if there's enough money in it for them. Now, my sense is that that may have been a misreading on both parts. You know, I, I think Europe is important, and I I think you're seeing like in the UK and Germany and France some pretty rapid reassessments of their relationships. And the degree to which they want to be interconnected with Chinese businesses that, you know, are engaged in questionable practices and might be involved with the Chinese military. But whether the Chinese are watching that carefully and whether they care, I, I don't know. I think that's a really, really hard question.
2: So, so you know, they, they say there is a lot of ruin in the nation. And similarly, when you look at these sort of, you know, EU-China relationship, like it can deteriorate quite dramatically for a fairly long amount of time, and there'll be still, you know, a lot of it left. So you had, you know, a company like BMW announcing that is moving its production of, you know, the Mini Cooper electromobile to to China from 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 the UK. I mean, you have companies that, in spite of everything, continue to sort of double down on that. On the economic relationship with China, and to so so I don't think you know in spite of like your 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 point about this change of dynamics in the EU is, is 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 well taken, but I don't see Europeans being anywhere close, you know, to the to the degree to which you know Americans are grappling with with this sort of question of economic interdependencies and and and, and so on and so forth. Like, you know, people were concerned about the EU's energy dependence on Russia for a long time without that you know and it wasn't translated into policy action until until after after this year's invasion uh, so so um so maybe the chinese are you know, perfectly rational just just sort of brushing brushing this brushing this away in a in a slightly sort of not, not a terribly concerned fashion
3: yeah, and, and maybe that means that you know we're the ones misreading the situation and that you know you do have substantial unity among the advanced industrial democracies when it comes to Ukraine, but that actually would fall apart pretty quickly if we asked some of those democracies to do really difficult things related to China. And I that wouldn't shock me. The the one challenge that I think I see on the Chinese part is I I just don't see any positive agenda with them in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. The investment agreement appears to be dead. The 14 plus one forum I think is dying. You know, are are they gonna have these bilateral meetings with the Germans and the French and the Brits and the Italians? Are are those gonna be really productive for them? I I don't know. So I think the hard part now is when they think about trying to rebuild their relationships in, in Europe, how do they do it? That That is not clear to me. But I think we know it's coming. And I think after the party Congress, um, we're going to see a lot of outreach by top Chinese leaders to try and sort of undo the damage that they've done recently.
0: We're running out of time a little bit. And there's a couple of military nits and bits that I would like to cover before uh, we go. Um, and they kind of arise out of our the conversation we just had on uh, nuclear issues. Again, looking at the Ukraine experience a couple things you know it's interesting the Russians are finding themselves having to brandish the nuclear threat more and more and threaten to lower the threshold for nuclear use. That tells us that their ability or the the value that they're getting out of strike warfare is not as great as some enthusiasts would. Uh, Would have imagined. Uh, And of course, the PLA has been, you know, spent a lot of money uh, on that theory over the last several decades. Likewise, the the whole um, area denial, A2D2, putting a bubble over things that you want to protect, is both in some ways easier to do and harder to do at the same time. And at any rate, the particulars. Have not played out according to the the grand theory of that. I'd just be interested both in your own reflections about that. But if you think, if you know of any, you know, sort of Chinese conversation on that, uh, those subjects, uh, if you could share it, that'd be great.
3: The, I think one real important military lesson for the Chinese is that you don't want to be in a situation where you build another Zelensky. And so if you are thinking about how to conduct an invasion of Taiwan, the first thing you want to do is use all of that strike package, I think, to try target and target the
0: comedy it. clubs first.
3: <laughs> right. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, you know, you'd go after the leadership and you wouldn't want, you know, if it was Tsai Ing-wen or whoever her successor is, you, you wouldn't want a similar charismatic leader to unite the Taiwanese people against an invading force. And, and I think so one, one thing I, I'm guessing they will take away is that the Russians made a thousand mistakes early on in the fight, but that, um, that the war might have gone really differently if, if Zelensky had been gone.
0: Well, presumably the Russians tr- would, you know, tried to do that. Yeah. Uh, you know.
3: Yeah. No, I think that's right. But you know, so I think that's one one question is, you know, how much more focus do they put on decapitation strikes early at the very outset of a conflict? You know, do can you do that with missiles? Can you do it with? improvised explosive devices that you somehow placed on Taiwan already? Can you do it through some sort of fifth column force? That that I think has to be a big lesson. I also think I'm not sure that anyone is going to take a lot of lessons away from how the Russians have used their strike capabilities because I think the Chinese are going to say, no, we wouldn't use our capabilities this way. We would do what every large military does when they do airstrikes, which is you take down enemy air defenses first. You don't try and like randomly strike targets while leaving the air defenses up. And so I think when it comes to Taiwan, they would be engaged in a massive missile and bombing campaign for, you know, opening hours or days of that conflict that would aim to take out all of the air defenses that Taiwan has, which is what the Russians, for some reason, didn't do in Ukraine, right? And so I think the Chinese will tell themselves that no, things, things would go quite differently for them if they actually carried out military operations the way you're supposed to do these things, not the way the Russians
1: didn't. That's interesting, and then an, another thing before you go, we sort of talked where you alluded to this here and there um, beyond Europe, what we call the west um, i'm I'm interested to hear from you because I know you're following Asia beyond um, beyond China in what lessons um, and also how you how you see the um, participation or help or support from US allies such as South Korea and Japan in this conflict, per se. I honestly, without following this area, was surprised and still am to see, particularly, South Korea that is making, basically, with their military deals with Poland, out of Poland, one of the largest, if not the largest, land force in Europe. And um, under the radar, there's a lot of rumors that I hear about how South Korea is trying to um, amplify relations with um, Ukraine directly, and there's Japan, a bit shyer, but it's also in there and looking as if it's trying to probe, but then participating, you know, at the NATO summit and G7 and those anonymous Biden-led military packages of 50 plus countries. And, And so I'm wondering, you're following them, what you see they are learning from this and whether... This is just wishful thinking or maybe a strategy of theirs in the same logic if as if we're helping the United States now, maybe the United States will help us when push comes comes to shove in the region.
3: I, I think that last piece is just so critical. Yeah, you know, the the way a lot of US allies and partners think about engaging out of area, right, is that if they help the U.S. somewhere else, that the U.S. will help them at home. And I think the challenge when it comes to China is that this is both, you know, in their home region for a lot of Asian allies, and a lot of them are really vulnerable to China economically, militarily. So my guess is that if there was a substantial contingency over Taiwan and the U.S. was involved, that Japan would have to be involved because U.S. bases in Japan would be attacked. You know, the second U.S. bases in Guam are attacked. So I think Japan is probably going to have to think very seriously and, and is about how to be involved in this kind of fight. And I think they're they're certainly learning a lot from um, how Europe has helped Ukraine. I, I think for Korea, for the Philippines, for Thailand, even maybe for Australia, the case is much more mixed. And there's a lot of risk if you're Korea, for example, Uh, if you get directly involved in a Taiwan contingency, the Chinese have a lot of levers that they can pull. So I always say that I think if we ended up in a Taiwan contingency and the U.S. was involved, Japan would be there for sure. Australia might be there depending on the circumstances. And I'm not 100% sure about anybody else in the region, including U.S. allies like the Philippines or Korea. I think it would be very dependent on the circumstances and very dependent on exactly what kind of actions the Chinese took, both against Taiwan, but also against those U.S. allies and partners.
2: I'm sorry to report that we seem to have lost Giselle along the way. She just, she got so angry at me for that last comment. Gosh. That's... Probably what, what happened. So I'm I'm happy to take us out, Zach Cooper, Thank you so much for 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 joining us. This was this was really really helpful, and and I hope our uh, listeners will have enjoyed it at least as much as we did. From Dalibor and Julia Josha and Giselle Damley. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And many thanks again to our special guest. Zach Cooper from AEI. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. I should also let you know that our newsletter is live. You can sign up for the newsletter through the link, which is included in the show notes, and you'll receive a fortnightly update of newly released episodes, Q&A with your hosts, Uh, The three of us, and you'll be able to stay up to date with the most recent op-eds, articles, books from us on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.